The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. So it is interesting that the lyrics of that song, if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? What could stand against? Our God, and in light of that passage in Daniel chapter three, what could stand against our God? If there's no other God who can deliver like our God, and so that's a that's a, a truth that flows through Scripture. So today we're going to be talking about the power of the Holy Spirit <clears throat> in a very specific um, section of Acts. This is our next section you know last week we finished up acts chapter 12 and so today we find ourselves in in the beginning of chapter 13 back in this city of antioch where if you remember from last week this was the first church <clears throat> that had jews and gentiles so this is the first place where uh, those who were following jesus were called christians and that was because it, it was a, a mixture of people from different backgrounds. And so you couldn't just say, well, that's a Jewish church or that's a Gentile church. It was Jews and Gentiles together all following Jesus. So they were called Christians. So if you remember, uh, Barnabas and Saul had come back from Jerusalem and they brought John Mark with them. You see that at the very end of chapter 12. So... Today we're going to look at a, a, different, <clears throat> a different story, and actually a beginning, so to speak, a beginning of Paul's missionary journeys. But some things have to happen before that can happen. So before we get into this scripture, it's only going to be 12 verses today, just the beginning of chapter 13, I want to mention something about the Holy Spirit. Because we talk about the Holy Spirit all the time, and I think... It's my personal opinion that, that in many churches, sometimes the Holy Spirit can be misunderstood on either end of a spectrum. Maybe misunderstood to be uh, more active than He really is, or, or in, in many cases, to be much less active than He should be. And, and so there's a misunderstanding, I think, on, on two different sides. So one person that I have read uh, quite a bit of his writing over the years, this individual was one of the most fiery, influential preachers of the 20th century. His name was A.W. Tozer. And if you've not read anything by him, anything you get your hands on from A.W. Tozer would be well worth time spent reading. He died in uh, the 60s, 19, I think about 1963. But prior to that, he was very powerful in the pulpit and he wrote a book called The Counselor and it was about the Holy Spirit. I want to read just a, a brief portion from this book that's a warning really. It's a warning to us to be careful what we do when we're gathered together. <clears throat> he quotes a scripture from Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6. And if you remember this is where that well-known verse comes from 
the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. This is what A.W. Tozer writes with regard to that. He says, it is possible to run a church and all of its activity without the Holy Spirit. You can organize it, get a board together, call a pastor, form a choir, launch a Sunday school and a women's ministry. You get it all organized. And the organization part is not bad. I'm all for it. But I'm warning about getting organized, getting a pastor, and turning the crank, you know, like it's a machine. Some people think that's all there is to it. The Holy Spirit can be absent, and the pastor goes on turning the crank, and nobody finds it out for years and years. What a tragedy, my brethren. What a tragedy that this could happen in a Christian church. But it doesn't have to be that way. If you could increase the attendance of your church until there's no more room, if you could provide everything they have in churches that men want and love and value, and yet you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you might as well have nothing at all. For it is not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Not by the eloquence of a man, not by good music, not by good preaching, but it is by the Spirit that God works His mighty works. You know, when I read that, it is, uh, it's almost scary. I had a gentleman... Uh, Gosh, this has been almost 12 years ago, maybe less. Come into my office one day, and we had a conversation about different things in the church and different, <clears throat> different ministries, different things we were doing and the way they were being done. And here's, here's the exact words he told me sitting across from me in my office and he said you know if I could just run this church for a week I'd get some things straightened out I, I really I was <laughs> I, I didn't know what to say if I could just run this church uh, there was so much wrong with, with that statement on lots of li different levels but the, the biggest glaring error was this there was an insinuation that <clears throat> I, and I was not the senior pastor of that church but there was an insinuation that I or the other pastors on staff like, as if we were running a, ch a church when I, I got news if you've never if you've never understood this about a church and maybe it's been because I, I've had some, I've had good experiences, bad experiences in church, I understand. But you need to know something very clearly. I don't run this church. And guess what else? 
you don't run this church. God runs this church. If, if ever any one of us, regardless of who you are, uh, what you do, uh, in, what position you hold, me at the top of that list, if any of us ever assume that we are running a church, we should probably just sidestep and watch out for the lightning to hit. Is that, I don't know if I can be any more clear than that. This is, if, if, this, if, if this is to be a holy, biblical, righteous, effective, evangelistic expression of the body of Christ, it must always be 100% dependent on the Holy Spirit of God. We can never assume control of any uh, part of God's ministry and mission in the world. He has, he has uh, graciously uh, allowed us to participate in His ministry. It's His mission. It's His Word. It's His plan. It's not ours. We are not in a position to dictate to God or, or let alone each other well, this is what God wants us to do, or, or, or worse yet, this is what we need to do, and then God's not even a part of it. This is not a machine that we turn the crank and just keep it running because we know how to do that, right? And, and that's the danger. I know how to preach. I know how to study the Scriptures. I know how to, to look at historical and grammatical context, and I know how to... Uh, translate the Hebrew and the Greek languages and look, do word studies and, and parse paragraphs and see what the mean. I know how to do all that academically. I, I can do that. I've done it for a while. But, but guess what? If I stand up here and open this Bible and presume to tell you this is what God says and I hadn't talked to God about what God really says, I'm in, I'm in great danger, and, and so are you. Because I've said it before, and I'll continue to say it as long as God allows me to preach. You don't need anything I have, but you need everything God has. And, and so my job, my, my station in ministry and life is to do my very best to rely 100% on God and Him alone and His Word alone and to be a, 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 an intercessor for you and to, to pray and to understand Scripture and let it be applied to my life and my heart and then bring that to you on Sunday. That's my job. Because I will tell you the truth. If it doesn't affect me, it's not going to affect you. Not, not because of anything I say. It, it's, it, it funnels through my heart and my life and I try to pass on to you what God has said. So knowing that, understanding the Holy Spirit and His vital, necessary role in, in everything that we do. Let's read. Let's read what God says. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. Here's what Luke writes uh, as he carries on through this story. The Holy Spirit has guided him to give us this great catalog of the early church. 
And so let's look at uh, Acts 13, beginning of verse 1. Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who is called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John, that's John Mark, as their helper. <clears throat> now when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus. Now I'll tell you something real quick before we finish this passage. Uh, just You'll have to remember this. Bar-Jesus, the, the trans, literal translation of that, Bar means son of, so this is literally, his name is son of Jesus. That's, that's important. Verse 7, uh, this was a magician whose name was Bar-Jesus who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. Now this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for so his name is translated, the same guy, same guy, Bar-Jesus, he was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Father, I thank you for this word. And I pray that by your grace, uh, by your mercy, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us today, that your Spirit would guide us through your word, help us understand, and, and mostly, Lord, help us to take the truth you've given us and apply it to our lives, help us to live more like Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. So, geographically speaking, let me just kind of tell you what has happened here where we are. Jerusalem, you know, is down in, in uh, Judea. Now, Barnabas and Saul had just returned. Okay, so that's, a, that's a long trip from uh, Antioch. Like, if you're looking at a map, and you know how the Mediterranean Sea, when you get close to uh, where Israel is, it kind of, it goes, and it just kind of, it's like a, the, the, a, a big land ball right there, okay? And all the way up that coast are all these cities that we've been talking about. Jerusalem's down here in the south, and then as you go up by the coast, there's Caesarea, which is a, a, a coastal place where they, they had sailed in and out of there several times. Then these cities, Tyre and Sidon, are up above that. That's uh, ones we talked about last week with Herod. Then way all the way up, almost at the very top of where the land, here's the Mediterranean, the land goes like that. So we're almost right at that top corner, if you're looking at the map. Way up there is Antioch. So it's, it's quite a, a trip. And right below that 
is the little coastal city of Seleucia. That's where they went to where they sailed to Cyprus. Now, Cyprus is an island, and it's, if you look on the map, it's right there in that cove, so to speak, at, uh, across from, uh, almost kind of across from Damascus, out from there, west of it. So it's right out there in the Mediterranean. So it's a, a short sailing trip right down from where they were in Antioch. They went to the coast. They sailed over there. Now, the two cities that are mentioned, I'm going to tell you this so I won't have to refer back to it. When you look at Cyprus as an island, the first city on the eastern border of Cyprus is Salamis. That's where they landed. Okay, So they started there. Well, on the west border of the island is Paphos. So when it says they went from Salamis across the whole island all the way till they got to Paphos, they basically, when they got there, they walked across the whole island. They covered the whole island and they were preaching the whole way. So I just want to kind of lay that out for you before we got into this so you can kind of get an idea in your mind. Geographically, this is what they're doing. They're, they're going from Antioch to the coast, they're sailing to the island, and they're going from one end to the island all the way to the other preaching the whole way. So the church, in preparation for that, look what they were doing. This is, this is one of the most important points at the beginning of the message. They were at Antioch, and it lists the leaders, the, the prophets and teachers that were there at the church. And so you see Barnabas, of course you know, and then at the end of the list you see Saul, you know, and then there's three other people, Simeon and Lucius and Manan. And it mentions he was raised up, Manan was, with Herod the Tetrarch. So this is uh, the, the son, one of the sons of Herod Antipas. So when you're trying to get... Uh, so he reigned, this Herod the Tetrarch, he reigned from um, 4, B, uh, 4 B.C. to 39 A.D. So he, he, he reigned for quite some time during the time of Jesus. All right. So there was five leaders there, prophets and teachers... But look what the church was doing. Because when you get to verse 2, it's a, it's a, 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 the way it's structured grammatically, they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. He's talking about the whole church. So what were they doing? Minister, how do you minister to the Lord? It's, it's worship. It's worship. They're, they might have been singing, but they were probably reading and studying the Word. They were probably praying. Things that you do when you're gathered with your church to worship, but it says specifically they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. Now that's important. Fasting. I, Howard Marshall, says it, it marks out the special significance of the occasion when the church felt it necessary to lay aside even the demands of hunger in order to concentrate on serving God and receiving His guidance. Because F.F. Uh, F. Bruce would say it this way. He said, there's indications in the New Testament that Christians were especially sensitive to the Spirit's communication during fasting. So this church, we need to get a, a good picture here. Before they just did something, they were heavily involved in worship and fasting. They were denying themselves a physical need so they could concentrate on hearing from God. So they weren't, they weren't just uh, offering uh, token prayers. Uh, you know, I, I'm guilty. I've done it before. And it's usually before a meal. 
You know, when, when, especially if you're in a big group, hey, preacher, will you come pray for this meal? Um, no pressure, but everybody's really hungry. Right? So, so keep it short, right? Keep it short. We've got stuff to do. Lord, thank you for the food. Amen. You know, that's, that's the most popular prayer ever. When, the, when everybody's together, everybody's hungry, it's time to eat. Okay, but that, that's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening. What they're doing is you get the sense they are laboring. They're focused. The fasting means they're not worried about their physical needs so much as they are, we really, really need to hear the Word of God. We need to hear directly from Him. So that's what they're doing. So the Holy Spirit says in verse 2, while they were doing this, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So look what they did. This is the response of verse 3. So this first section here, the first three verses is a paragraph. Barnabas and Saul get commissioned to serve, but they're praying and fasting when they hear from the Spirit, and then after they hear from the Spirit, what do they do? Look at verse 3. <laughs> after they had prayed and fasted. So it's like they made sure when they heard from God, they didn't want to even chance the possibility that they had misunderstood. So verse 3 says, Then when, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them. So they were fasting. They heard from the Holy Spirit. This is what you need to do. Set apart these two brothers to go serve me, the work I've, I've called them to. And so then they prayed and fasted specifically more. So they were just generally worshiping, ministering to God, fasting. They heard from the Holy Spirit. Then once they got that message, they prayed and fasted specifically about that message. They laid their hands on Barnabas and Saul, commissioned them almost as a, a blessing to say, hey, we're, this is your fellowship, we're with you, we're supporting you, do what God has told you to do. And so after they had prayed and fasted and laid their hands on them and had prayer for them, they sent them out. So the big key in the first three verses is how is it that... Here's our application, okay? Here's our application of that point in our context. If we really want to know exactly what God wants us to do, not, not uh, Bethker, not Tabernacle, not First Baptist Wagner, not First Baptist Springfield, not Pleasant Hill, not any other church around here, if we want to know what God wants us to do, how do we figure that out? We got to get focused. Pray fast. Fasting is a is not a popular ministry. Not popular at all. But that's how that's how God communicates. When we get focused, when we deny ourselves for a period of time, physical needs. So every here's here's the key to fasting. Every time we get that hunger pain and it hits, you know what that is? It's like if you ever, you ever take your phone and uh, like if you have a hard time getting up in the morning, you ever set, you don't set just one alarm and hit snooze. You set like seven alarms like every two or three minutes. So it's going to just be bombarding you, right, all the time to remind you, oh, i got to get up. And you snooze one of them and then by the time you snooze one, another one's going off. You snooze that one, another one's going off. Just... It's incessant. It just, it just bombards you with an alarm, right? 
That's what fasting is supposed to do for us spiritually. Every time we feel that twinge, we feel that hunger pain, that's a reminder, it's like an alarm going off. Pray. Listen for God. Listen for what He's saying. Because He's trying to speak to you. Listen for God's voice. It's not, it's not for you to think, oh gosh, I'm so hungry. That's not, that's not the purpose. When you feel the hunger pain, it's a reminder to rely on God. Because we've denied a certain physical need for a time in order we can focus on what God says. So that's what they were doing. If we want to know what God wants us to do, hey, and individually, not just collectively, individually, you're having difficulties finding God's will and direction for your life? Pray, fast, listen. God's not trying to keep it a secret. He just, he just wants, your, he wants our undivided attention. That's what God wants. Block out the world, all the distractions. Listen to God. He will speak. So Barnabas and Saul are commissioned to serve. The last half of this passage, Barnabas and Saul take the gospel to Cyprus. So here's what happens. The Bible says they were sent out by the Holy Spirit, verse 4. They go down to Seleucia, and like I said, they sail over to Cyprus. So I've given you the geography. They reach Salamis, and here's what they do in verse 5. They begin to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John Mark as their helper. So they're following a pattern. If you remember of what Paul would write in Romans chapter 1 when he said, makes that declaration, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You remember what he said then after that? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what is their mission plan? They get to Cyprus. They begin going through the whole island, proclaiming the word of God in the Jewish synagogue. So there's a pattern. They're not, they're not being picky. They're not being exclusive. They just have a, an order. Okay? They have an order of what they're doing. So they're proclaiming the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Verse 6 tells us they've made it all the way across. Right? It says when they had reached... Uh, Paphos, it says they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, so that's all the way to the other end, right? They started where they, where they hit ground and, and on the east side of the island and went all the way through to the other side. So when they had done that, that's when they ran across Bar-Jesus. Now remember, I told you what his name means, and this is the most um, ironic name, considering what Paul says to him a little bit later. His name is Bar-Jesus. The Bible is very specific. He's Jewish. He's a false prophet. So what does that mean exactly? That means he's opposing the gospel. And it should be noted that he is uh, employed by the proconsul Sergius Paulus. So why do you think he has such a vested interest in making sure that his boss doesn't really buy into what Paul and Barnabas are saying because he doesn't want to lose his job, he doesn't want to lose his money, so he's comfortable where he is. And then here's com here comes two missionaries bringing the truth of Christ, and he's threatened. So that's what's going on here. So the Bible says uh, the, the proconsul, verse 7, Sergius Paulus, was a man of intelligence, and so what's the most intelligent thing he could do? He, he calls Barnabas and Saul, hey, 
come give me this message. I've been hearing. I want to hear it for myself. I want to hear the Word of God. It says that he summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the Word of God, but opposition. Every time, right? Every time. Opposition to the Gospel. So now we get the translation of Bar-Jesus, his name, Elimus, the magician. It says he was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. He doesn't want his boss to hear and believe the Word of God because it will affect his employment status, his income stream. So as soon as his opposition is made known, what does, what does Paul do? Here's another little irony. Do you remember how Saul, Paul, do you remember how he got saved? Do you remember where he was? He was on the road to Damascus, right? Do you remember how Jesus got his attention? Blinded him, right? Well, I don't believe in coincidence. This man is opposing the gospel. He needs to, needs to meet Jesus. So what does Saul say? Hey, you're full of deceit and fraud. You're a son of the devil. You're an enemy of all righteousness. So here's what's going to happen. You're going to be blind. <laughs> See how you enjoy it. I was blind too. You know, God got a hold of me. So now, guess what? You're going to be blind too. See how it works for you. So look at the list of characteristics in verse 10 that Saul lays on this brother. And he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that. Verse 9. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying is he's a conduit for God's message. And he says, first of all, you're full of deceit and fraud. Then he says, you're a son of the devil. Remember what his name means? Son of Jesus. And Saul is very direct and says, no, no, you, you, you were named wrong because you're not acting like a follower of Jesus, a son of Jesus. You're acting like a son of the devil. And by his, F.F. Bruce said, by his opposition to the truth, he had shown himself to be a child of the devil rather than a son or follower of Jesus, as his name might imply. He's an enemy of all righteousness, and he makes crooked the straight ways of the Lord. So what kind of path does Jesus lay out for us? It's straight, and it's guarded by this word. It's, it's, uh, it's got uh, rails, so to speak. It keeps us on the, what, what's, it, what's it called, typically? The straight and narrow path. This is, the, the Bible is the guardrails. Okay? It keeps us on the path. So Saul uh, accuses him of making crooked the straight ways of the Lord. He says, how long are you going to do this? And then it's a rhetorical question because then in verse 11 he says, well, uh, I'll tell you what, before you answer, tell me how long you're going to keep doing this. How about this? You're going to be blind for a while. You're not going to be able to see the sun. And it's, the Bible says immediately a mist and darkness fell on him and he starts looking for somebody to lead him by the hand. He's trying, he's like, he's immediately blind. So there's no time wasting here in the punishment for opposing the gospel. I want you to see very clearly this is not just Oh, well, Saul was annoyed, and he didn't want anybody trying to disagree with him, so this was a personal vendetta. That's not what happened. This was specifically because he was opposing the gospel truth. Okay? This is a, a judgment that was meted out by God himself, by the Holy Spirit, 
through Saul to stop the opposition of the gospel because the boss man was about to hear and he wanted to hear and he ends up believing. So you see the, the consequence or the, the result of this. Paul says, the hand of the Lord is upon you. Now usually that's a positive thing. In this case, not so much. The hand of the Lord is upon you. You're going to be blind. You're not going to see the sun. Immediately the mist and the darkness fell upon him and he was looking for someone to lead him by the hand. So look at verse 12, the final verse of our passage today. What's the result of the gospel being faithfully preached through the power of the Holy Spirit and the opposition being put down because of God's plan and purposes through His servants, the missionaries, Barnabas and Paul? What's the result? The proconsul believed. Now why did he believe? There's two things here that are told to us in verse 12. He believed when he saw what had happened. You know, this is a typical uh, representation of the early church when things were just beginning and growing and multiplying at such a rapid rate. What do we almost always see throughout the book of Acts? Here's what we see. A clear, unapologetic, confident proclamation of the gospel. Not backing down, not, uh, you know, timid, but forceful, confident, bold. He, they even pray that in, in Acts, 5, Acts 4, 5. Give us boldness to speak the truth. More boldness is what they pray for every time they get persecuted. More boldness. So you see a bold proclamation of the truth and then you see signs and wonders that attest to the credibility of the message. So in the same way here, they're speaking the truth of the gospel to this guy, Sergius Paulus, and also accompanying the, the message is the sign, the wonder of, oh, the guy who was opposing this truth is now all of a sudden blind. So he's too busy trying to deal with his blindness that, so he can't oppose the truth anymore. And so now the, the man who was meant to hear the truth is hearing the truth, and he believed. He saw what happened. Look at the end of the verse. He was amazed. But look why he was amazed. It was not because of the miracle that Paul had performed that caused the man to be blind. He was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So here's the question for us today. Are you amazed at God's Word? When you read the Bible, does it leave you in awe, astonished, moved? When you read Scripture, when you see and hear and understand the truth of God, the truth of the Gospel, how does it make you feel? What's your emotional response to the truth of Christ? Maybe a better question would be this. Do you need a miracle to happen before you'll believe? Do you need a sign or a wonder to take place in your presence before you can be amazed at the teaching of the Lord? What is our threshold of belief in a culture filled with sensational things? Movies and television with 
almost unlimited technology, things that can appear uh, supernatural on a TV screen or a movie screen, and just, wow, that was amazing. Do you need that before you believe the truth of the Gospel? Or is Jesus Christ and His Word enough? Is, is His life, is His testimony, is all He did in His lifetime and then going to the cross and rising again on the third day, is, is all that enough? Or do we still need some miracle to push us over the line to where we'll actually believe and be amazed at the teaching of the Lord? Where, where are we in our lives? Does, does Jesus... Leave us amazed? Or are we looking for something sensational? Are we looking for a miracle? Are we standing around the cross watching Jesus bleed and saying something like one of the soldiers said? Well, he saved other people and he can't even save himself. He, if he would come down from the cross, then maybe we would believe him. Yeah, forget the fact that he raised Lazarus from the dead. Forget the fact that he fed more than 15,000 people. Forget the fact that he calmed the storm on the seas. Forget all that. We need some, what have you done for me lately, Jesus? What miracle have you performed today? It's a new day. All that other stuff doesn't count. At what point do we understand... This is enough. Jesus is enough. If He doesn't do another thing for any of us, He's enough. It's a miracle every time a sinner repents and turns to Jesus for forgiveness and salvation. It's a miracle. We, we look at the everyday miracles and act like they don't count. At what point will we see Jesus for who He is? Will we understand the power of the Holy Spirit that our uh, Christian experience and the church, it's not a machine that we just turn the crank to keep it running. The Holy Spirit is a crucial ingredient to our lives to the life of this church, to every church that follows Jesus. We, we have to have the Holy Spirit. If we don't, if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we are, we're done for. And worse yet, this, this is probably the, the, the self-examination question we have to deal with. We, we have to answer this question. If the Holy Spirit was suddenly taken away from us, would we notice? Are we so dependent on the Spirit of God that if the Spirit left, we would realize what just happened? We would understand we are now helpless. We are now hopeless. We now have no power to do what God's called us to do because 
Do you remember how this book began? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then you will be my witnesses. There's an order. If we don't have the Spirit, then we can't be witnesses because we don't have any power. The power is all from God. And we've got to have it every day, all the time. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org. 